lesson, we're going to take a look at the second of seven letters given by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ through, of course, the pen of the Apostle John to seven first century churches. Now, this second letter, which is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, was addressed to the church at Smyrna. And this was the persecuted church. This was the martyred church, which not only represents persecuted and, and um, martyred Christians, also represents, remember when we looked at the church age, it represents the second stage in church history. This was the time in church history or church development when the church was strongly opposed and when it was persecuted by the Roman Empire. And that began under the reign of Emperor Nero. And it lasted all the way till the death of Emperor Diocletian. Now, during this time, as you probably know, thousands and thousands of Christians, including men, women, boys, and girls, sealed their faith with their own blood. They were martyred for their faith in Christ. Now, although the letter to Smyrna is the shortest of the seven letters that we'll be looking at, it does carry the most comfort and the most assurance to suffering believers of all ages, even those who are suffering for their faith today. And there are many, many Christians in the world today suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider this second Revelation church letter, we're going to do so, as you can see up here, by looking at four main divisions in our outline, just as we had done with the letter to the Ephesians. First, we're going to discuss some of the known details about the actual first century city which existed um, back in Asia Minor in that day, the city named Smyrna. And then we're going to discuss some of the known details about the church which existed there. We don't know quite as many details about this church as we did about the church at uh, Ephesus. And then in the third section of our outline, we're going to look at the Lord's designation of himself to the Smyrna believers, which is found in the latter half of verse 8. He referred to himself in this particular letter as the first and the last, and as he which was dead and is alive. And this, of course, was... Um, something that was taken from John's chapter 1 vision of him. All of his designations of himself in each one of these seven letters was taken from the, uh, John's vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ back in chapter 1. And every time he refers to himself in some way to those believers, that particular church, there is a special reason for that. And in this situation, there definitely is a a reason for why he refers to himself as the first and last and he which was dead and is alive. And that's what we'll look at when we look at the description of Christ in part three. And then lastly, we'll look at his declaration. And that, of course, is the bulk of the letter. This morning, we're only going to get as far as his approval. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to conclude by looking at the Lord's advice to the Smyrna believers, his appeal to them, and then his award to the overcomer. And then I think that isn't going to take too long, so I do believe we'll also start the letter to the church at Pergamos next week as well. Now, of the seven churches, we find that only Smyrna and Philadelphia, I don't know if you can see that very well, but I circled here what I'm talking about. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia received no accusation from the Lord. If you notice on my outline, I didn't have the word accusation. He approved, and then he gave advice, and then... His, he talked about his award and 
um, his appeal, but there was no subdivision called his accusation. That's because in this letter and in the letter to the Philadelphian believers, the Lord does not accuse them or condemn them of anything. The Ephesian church, if you remember back before we broke for Christmas, when we studied the Ephesian church, it was highly acclaimed by the Lord uh, for its doctrinal purity and for its perseverance under persecution and for its spiritual discernment in keeping out heretics. And yet, remember, the Lord had to speak these very sad words. He said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. And what was it? Right, they had, he said, because thou hast lost thy first love. They had lost their first love. So that was his condemnation to the church at Ephesus. Well, we're going to find nothing of this nature at all in the Lord's letter to the Smyrna believers. To this body of godly saints, he only expressed his understanding and his sympathy, his compassion, and his tender counsel and his encouragement. It is a letter of encouragement to suffering believers. Okay, so with that little introduction, let's look at part one of our outline, the details about the city itself. Smyrna was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire, and it prided itself on its beauty and on its wealth. An inscription which is written on many of the coins which are found Uh, as archaeologists dig up around that city. uh, The inscription on many of the coins reads, First of Asia in beauty and size. So see, they were proud of their city. The people of Smyrna were very aggressive and sensitive about their rivalry with Ephesus, over which, uh, which one of the two cities, they were always in, competition about which of the two cities was the greatest city in all of Asia Minor. Smyrna was founded about three centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was founded by Lysimachus. I don't know if any of you remember him when we studied the book of Daniel. There were four generals who took over after Alexander the Great. This ugly little monster here represents, it's a goat, He represents Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel, and there were four horns that came out from his head, and that represented the four um, rulers who would take over after Alexander. And one of those was a man by the name of Lysimachus. Well, he's the one who was said to have found the the city of um, Smyrna. He was a general. And this city was located on the direct trade route from India and Persia to Rome. It was also situated, back in those days, on a good harbor, and therefore it was a major commercial center. The city was celebrated for its schools of science and medicine and for its impressive and handsome buildings. One such building was called the Homerarium because Smyrna claimed to be the birthplace of who do you think? Homer, exactly. Homer, the the poet, the Greek poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it was also the place where there was a great theater which was able to seat 20,000 spectators. The Golden Street of Smyrna connected the Temple of Zeus with the Temple of Cybele. And it is, of course, those are 
false Greek mythological gods. This golden street is said to have been the best in any ancient city. Smyrna, which had a population of about 200,000, was closely associated with the Roman Empire and was very patriotic, was very loyal to the Roman Empire. And, and therefore, like Ephesus, Ephesus, it was a free city. And what did that mean? Remember? It meant that there was no Roman garrison there. There was no military there to make sure they behaved themselves because they could be trusted by Rome to rule over their own affairs. They were very patriotic to Rome. And it really isn't surprising that Smyrna was a free city because as far back as 195 B.C., 195 years before Christ, which was even before the existence of an emperor in Rome, the citizens of Smyrna had erected a temple in honor of the entire empire. They'd you know, put up a temple just to honor and worship Rome herself. They were worshiping Rome as if she was a goddess. In the year 23 AD, Smyrna was in competition along with other cities of Asia Minor for the honor of being allowed to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius in honor and in worship of Tiberius. And of all the cities who were in competition for this special honor, Smyrna was the city which was selected. So she had the reputation for being closely bound to the emperor cult, you know, to the worship of the emperor, Caesar worship, we could call it. Well, as you can imagine, the Christians at this time and of this city, who would, of course, refuse to cast incense into the fire, which was constantly burning before the bust of Caesar in the temple, they would refuse to do this as an act of worship, which all the people, all the citizens were required to do. The Christians would not do it, and so therefore they were publicly opposed. They were not only financially ruined and stripped of all of their worldly possessions, but in many cases they were martyred. They were killed for their faith. So it was a very dangerous thing to be a Christian in that day and age, but particularly in Smyrna, which was so close, you know, in its relationship with Rome and with emperor worship. Yet, from the Lord's perspective, it may have been a dangerous thing to be a Christian in Smyrna, but from the Lord's perspective, it was an honor to have been a Christian in Smyrna. Because we must remember that the body of believers in this city received absolutely no accusation, no condemnation from their glorified Savior. Why is that? Why do you think they received no condemnation? Well, it is because persecution and suffering, for Christ's name's sake, has a way of doing what to a church? Exactly, purifying a church and a Christian. Persecution has a way of very quickly dispelling the dross or the tears from a church because all the dead weight will almost immediately fall away, won't it? as soon as persecution strikes. People without any real faith, any genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus and in his word are not going to be willing to suffer personally for his name's sake if they don't really believe in him. Hypocrisy in the face of 
persecution will quickly hurry home. Consequently, all that will be left in the church will be the cream of the crop, those who truly are born again. And this was the case in the church at Smyrna, as it was likewise the case in church history from about 64 A.D. to 313 A.D. when the church was facing tremendous persecution. It is the way it is today in Muslim countries among Christians, isn't it? I mean, they're going to pull together, and if they're, they're only going to stay and be persecuted if they're genuine. It's the same way in the church in China. Those churches are the churches that are really, really committed, you know, and the Christians there are really sincere and committed. They're willing to give their lives for their faith. So you don't find a lot of hypocrites and a lot of tares in persecuted churches. Well, during these years, 64 to 313, um, as I said, there just weren't many hypocrites occupying the pews because nobody was going to face losing everything that they had, losing all their possessions, and losing their family or even losing their own lives by professing something in which they really didn't believe. So the persecuted church is the what church? Pure church. The persecuted church is the pure church. That's why it would probably be a good thing. You hate to say this, but it probably would be a good thing for us to start being persecuted here in America to purify our churches. All right, let's talk about some of the details of the church which existed at Smyrna. By the way, let me just read the first verse where it says, And unto, this is verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. All right, let me stop right there. What church are we talking about? What church is the Lord writing to? The church at Smyrna. The city of Smyrna, I didn't tell you this before when I had the map up there, but it was located about 35 miles from Ephesus, that was north of Ephesus. And although few specific details are known about the Smyrna church, other than what we learn in these four verses here in Revelation chapter 2, it is surmised that it probably started as an offshoot from the church at Ephesus. We know that it was a very faithful church. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will probably find out that it was one of the most outstanding bodies of believers in all of church history. The name Smyrna, as we discussed in one of our introductory lessons, you know, when we talked about all the different names, actually I had that right here, that last column, the name Smyrna, came from comes from the Greek word what? Myrrh. The city got its name, Smyrna, or Myrrh, because myrrh was one of its leading exports. Myrrh is a fragrant substance which is actually a resin which is taken from a small thorny, bushy like tree which bears a little plum type of a fruit. Both the fruit and the bark of the tree are crushed in order to produce this fragrant resin. When it is crushed, as I said, a beautiful fragrance is extracted. Now it was used, myrrh was used in ancient times for three main purposes. It was used 
as an exotic perfume. It was the Giorgio of its day. And we can read about that in Psalm 45, 8. It was also used as a holy ointment. It was used um, in order to anoint Aaron into the priesthood back in Exodus 30, 23. And it was always also used as an embalming fluid. And when did we see that? Right, when they embalmed the Lord's body. So three purposes, perfume, holy ointment, and embalming fluid. Apart from being the name of this second revelation church, the word Smyrna, which does translate as myrrh, is only used three times in the New Testament. So I want to take a moment just to look at those three significant times that we find the word Smyrna or myrrh, other than right here in this church letter. First of all, we find it back in Matthew 2.11, and you all know about this. When the wise men from the east brought gifts to the young Jesus, not the baby Jesus, but the young child Jesus. Now those gifts, as we all know, consisted of gold, which symbolizes what? You know, royalty. Gold symbolizes his royalty, the Lord's royalty as king. Frankincense, which symbolizes deity. And what was the third thing they brought? Myrrh. All right, that's the first time we find the word myrrh. Myrrh symbolizes suffering. Now, our word martyr, by the way, comes from the word myrrh or the word smyrna. Now, why, we might ask, would myrrh be presented to the young child Jesus? Well, of course, you all know. The answer is because the Lord Jesus, the Son of the living God, stepped out of time and eternity to be born into this world in the likeness of men in order to suffer for mankind's sin. He was born, in other words, to do what? He was born to die. He was born to die for the sins of the world. He was born to suffer. And this is what the gift of myrrh presented to him as a young child symbolized and predicted. It was a picture of his future suffering. Well, the second time that the word myrrh is used in the New Testament occurs in Mark 15:23. And in this context, the Lord Jesus was about to be nailed to the cross at Calvary. But first of all, he was offered a mixture of wine vinegar mingled with myrrh. And this was used as an anesthetic. That mixture was used as an anesthetic in order to dull the senses. And consequently, it would dull a little bit, not a whole lot, but dull the pain a little bit when they would hammer those nails into him. But what did he do? He had come to suffer. He had come to drink the full cup of his father's wrath against sin. And so it said there in the scripture that he received it not. The third time myrrh appears in the New Testament, and you have to pretend that that woman there is another man, Third time it appears is in John 19.39 when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus embalmed the body of Jesus with a hundred pounds of aloes and myrrh. Okay, So at the Lord's birth, or at his early childhood, at the cross and then at his death, myrrh was present. All three places, symbolizing, number one, the reason he was born, which was to suffer and die. Number two, the actual suffering or the crushing 
what they have to do to produce myrrh? Had to crush it, and that's what we see at the cross, the crushing itself. And then thirdly, the sealing of his suffering, and that was at his death. Now, there is a very fascinating contrast. I don't know how many of you are aware of this or not, but there is a very fascinating contrast to the Lord's first coming, which is given to us in Isaiah chapter 60. If you want to flip over there, you don't have to. You can listen to me if you want to. But in Isaiah chapter 60, we have a very interesting contrast to the Lord's first coming. This chapter speaks about his second coming. In Isaiah 60, we find a prophetic picture of Christ's second coming. Look at verses 3 to 6. His second coming, at which time he is going to establish his 1,000-year kingdom here on earth. Well, in verse 6, we find that once again, just as at the time of his first coming, once again, what do we find? There are going to be men on camels. Do you know what a dromedary is? You read that in your text. A dromedary is a camel. There are going to be men on camels coming from, where do you suppose? The east. See, it mentions Midian and Ephah and Sheba. Those are all to the east of Israel. They're going to be coming on camels from the east, and they're going to be bringing gifts for the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now, this is not a prediction of his first coming. In one sense, it could be. You know, sometimes there's double prophetic prophecy, double prophecies. But this is really speaking about the Lord's second coming. And it further tells us what they're going to bring at his second coming when he establishes his kingdom and he's reigning in Jerusalem, seated on his rightful throne. And these men from the east come on camels to bring him gifts. What are they going to bring him? Well, first of all, they're going to bring him gold. What does gold symbolize? Royalty. Who's sitting on the throne? King of kings, Lord of lords. Secondly, they're going to bring him incense, and they say this is the same thing as frankincense, and that symbolizes deity. Who is he? He's the Son of God. But do you notice in this passage in Isaiah 60, there is no mention at all of what? Myrrh. There is no mention of myrrh, and why do you suppose that this is? Right. He suffered once for all. At his second coming, there will be no more crushing. As a matter of fact, when he comes the second time, not as the suffering servant, but as the judge, it is he who will be doing the crushing. So there's no myrrh. And isn't that interesting? There's no myrrh. How many of you had ever seen that passage there before? It's really fascinating. So it is appropriate that instead of myrrh, do you notice what the third gift is that they will be bringing him? Right. The third gift will be their praises, praises to his person. (coughs) So I just want to make sure to point that out to you. Well, we don't know for certain who founded the church at Smyrna. You can go back to Revelation 2. But history does tell us about a 92-year-old Smyrna man who chose physical torture and death in a dungeon rather than to deny his Lord. And we also know these are actual people who died for their faith in Smyrna. 
We know of a 15-year-old boy who even under severe and sadistic torture still would not refrain from confessing the Lord as his Savior. And we know also of a young female slave who demonstrated almost superhuman strength under the most cruel of tortures and who was finally thrown into a net to a wild beast in order to be devoured by lions for her faith in Jesus Christ. But most well-known of all the people from Smyrna who suffered martyrdom for their faith in Jesus Christ was the church leader. We do know who the church leader was. Not maybe the original one, but one a little bit later. And his name was, who knows? Yes, I heard it. Polycarp? Yes, Polycarp, the church leader. Um, Polycarp was led to his saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul himself. And he was the last living saint to have known the Apostle John. In 155 A.D., Polycarp was arrested at the home of a friend just outside of the city of Smyrna, and he was taken before Ironarch Herod, who was the ruler at that time, and he asked, Herod asked him, quote, What harm is there in just saying Caesar is Lord or in participating in these ceremonies so that you can be spared? What ceremonies was he talking about? Throwing the incense into the fire before the bust of Caesar. You know, he says, what big deal is it? Just say Caesar is Lord and throw a little handful of incense. Because Herod did not really want to make a saint, well, you know, in, the, in their way of thinking, he didn't want to martyr Polycarp. So he says, what harm is there? The, um, and Polycarp answered by saying to Herod, I cannot do as you advise me. I cannot say that Caesar is Lord. I can only say Jesus is Lord. Well, the consequence of this was that Polycarp was placed into an arena where, of course, there were lions right behind the doors. And while he was there, the proconsul shouted to him, and he said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ, and I will set thee free. Polycarp answered with this wonderful declaration, which has become very famous to Christians throughout the church age. He said, Eighty and six years. So how old was he? Eighty-six. Well, he was probably even older, because he said, Eighty and six years have I served him. So the man must have been in his nineties. And he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When again the proconsul Herod tried to press him to renounce Christ, Polycarp responded with these words. He said, Since you are vainly urging that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me now. I am a Christian. Well, a little while later, the governor tried to persuade him again and said, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast thee, except thou change. And when the governor finally saw that this approach with the lions didn't work on Polycarp, he said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing thou art not fearful of wild beasts, 
if thou wilt not change. Now to this latest threat, Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire, which burns but for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why are you tarrying? Bring forth what you will. So soon after this, the Jews of Smyrna, the Jews, who seemingly were even more antagonistic against the Christians than were the Romans, the Jews brought the wood for the fire in which Polycarp was to be burned. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Jews in Smyrna in a little bit. It was the Sabbath day as well. This was the Sabbath. And yet, what did the Jews do? They carried wood. They broke their own laws um, in order to carry wood to see that Polycarp would be burned. So the Jews of Smyrna, for the most part, were very, very secular, and they were not at all concerned with spiritual matters. So the wood was brought and the fire was lit, and it was recorded by the eyewitnesses that were there that old Polycarp refused, and this is the part that really amazes me, that he refused to be tied to the post in order to be restrained. And instead, he willingly stood within the flames um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He just stood there and let the flames consume him. I can't imagine being able to do that. That would only be the grace of God. And then in the midst of the flames, while they were consuming his body, this final prayer from his lips was recorded. He said, he looked up to heaven and he said, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of your martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. What faith is truly, truly amazing. What was it that gave Polycarp? And what was it that gave the many other of the thousands like him throughout church history? Even today, they say there are more being martyred for Christ today than all together throughout church history, over there in China particularly, and India, and all the Muslim countries. Many, many people being martyred even today for their faith in, in Christ. What was it? What is it that enables them to have the strength to face death instead of denying the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it, was their, it is their belief and it is their hope and it is their confidence in knowing that their physical death is not the end. And what is that confidence built on? Right, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly, you see, what he reminds these suffering Christians about in his designation of himself in the latter half of verse 8. When he um, says, he specifically reminds them that he is the first and the last, he, and that he is he which was dead and is alive. Christ, and I'm moving on to our third part of our outline now, the the designation of Christ. Christ compassionately reminded the suffering saints at Smyrna that he is the first and the last. This is taken from uh, Revelation 1.11 and also Revelation 1.17, the vision. 
that John had of Christ when Christ had said that in those verses. And this means he's the first and the last. Remember, he had also said he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. This means that he is the sovereign, eternal God of the universe. He was there before all things began, and he'll be there after all things end that are going to end. He's the sovereign, eternal God. He's the one, in other words, who is in control of everything. And he also said that he is the one which was dead and is alive. That goes back to... Chapter 1, verse 18, meaning that, of course, he defeated death. Now, these two designations of himself were purposely used by the Lord in his letter to this suffering church in order to assure them of his own understanding. In other words, because he is the sovereign, eternal God, the first and the last, he was telling them that he knows what they were going through. If you're sovereign, eternal God, you know everything, right? You're omniscient. So he's telling them he knows everything. Furthermore, because he himself suffered death, which is what he's saying when he says that he, when he, that he was dead, he suffered death, he's reminding them of that. And, of course, it was not just a simple death. It was a very cruel death, the most cruel death that men have ever invented. He was not a martyr. Jesus Christ was not a martyr. He was a substitute, and there is a big difference. But yet he did suffer a very cruel death. Because of this, he could totally sympathize with what they were going through. He could sympathize with their infirmities. He had been there himself. The great encouragement and the sure hope which he gave to these believers, however, came in his reminder to them of his resurrection. It wouldn't give them a whole lot of comfort if he had just reminded them that he had died. He goes on to say, I am alive. And that's where the hope comes in. He was dead, but he is alive. In effect, he was saying to the Smyrna Christians, I can give you victory, even though you are suffering for a little while, and even though you may give the ultimate sacrifice of your life, as we've just seen Polycarp and some of these others had to do. Yet you are going to come out as the victor. You are going to come out victorious because I have already conquered death on your behalf. Because I live, ye also shall live. These suffering, persecuted people needed to be reminded of this. They needed to be reassured that the Lord had defeated death and that he was the master over the grave. They needed to hear that in their suffering for Christ. They needed to hear that there is, in the end, ultimate victory. Men can harm the body, but they can't harm the soul. And they might harm the body temporarily, but one day even the body will resurrect. You know, the Bible never promises that anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior never promises that they will have an easy road in this world. But the Lord did have this to say to his own. He said, in the world ye shall have, what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So because he overcame it and we are in him as Christians, then we too can be overcomers. The unique thing about Christianity is that we do not worship a dead man like the Buddhists and the Mohammedans and the Confucianists 
We do not serve a dead man. Neither do we serve a dead God, as all of the other um, religions and cults do, because their gods are false. We serve a living Savior. We serve a Savior who is alive today. One who did die, but who conquered death and the grave and Satan and the penalty of sin, which is eternal death, on our behalf. And because of this wonderful truth, and it is true, because of this truth, he is able to work on the behalf of all of his followers of any day, of any age. Well, let's turn now to the actual um, meat or the declaration of his letter to the saints of Smyrna and see what he had to say to them, first of all, today by way of approval. And then, as I said, next week we'll look at the other remaining parts of this letter. So for now, let's look at verse 9, his approval. He goes on to say, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. As I said before, this is the shortest message of any of the seven Revelation church letters, but it contains one of the greatest commendations to any body of believer. And you know what that greatest commendation is? It's not the fact that he says, I know thy works, or your tribu- his, their tribulation, or their pop- poverty. His greatest commendation to any body of believers, which was in this case to these Smyrna believers, is his absence of any condemnation, as we talked about earlier. So his greatest commendation is the lack of any condemnation. Wouldn't you like to stand before the Lord one day and have him have nothing negative to say about your life? I mean, I can't imagine. that That's already <laughs> negative in my life, I know for sure. The Lord said absolutely nothing by way of accusation to this church body. And as I said, that's the greatest compliment of all. But then, in addition to saying nothing negative, I mean, yeah, nothing negative to the church, he did specifically commend them for some things, and that's what we're going to look at in the rest of this lesson. The first two words that the Lord spoke in verse 9 are what? I know. In the English, it's one word in Greek, but in our English translation, it's two words. The first two words of this verse are very encouraging words, not only to those at the church in Smyrna, but to any believers who suffer for Christ's name's sake. Because the Lord said, I know. Again, here he was reinforcing to them the fact that he is sovereign, that he is God, and he is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows what they were going through. He knows what you're going through. He knows what the Christians in China are going through. He knows what everyone who has ever suffered for his name's sake has gone through. He knows about those dark hours of trial. He knows every pain. He knows every heartache, every detail of suffering. And he understands. And he sympathizes. Furthermore, he is standing with them in their time of affliction. Remember where we saw him in that vision in chapter 1? Where was he? He was in the midst of his churches. He's standing there with them. 
There is no tear, no sob, no discouragement, no heartache, no pain, no loss, no fear that you and I can go through or that any true Christian can go through that he is not there with us. Remember what he promised on his way back up to heaven? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He is the sovereign, sympathetic Savior. And he knows. He knows. And aren't you glad that he knows? Aren't you glad that we do not have a God who just set the world into motion and then apathetically went off somewhere else? and isn't paying any attention to what's going on here on planet Earth. Aren't you glad that we have a God who knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, knows when every sparrow falls to the ground, knows every single detail of our lives, that he's not removed from our feelings? As we said, he's been there in a human body, and he understands everything. So to the suffering saints of Smyrna, he said, I know... Now, here's what he says he knows. He says, I know thy works and tribulation. And it's interesting to realize here that the Greek word used for tribulation is the word thilipsis, which literally means to be crushed. Isn't that fascinating? The church, this little church at Smyrna, which means myrrh, was being crushed. Right? You have to crush myrrh to get the fragrance. And he says that he knows that they're being crushed. See, every, every little word the Holy Spirit used with exact precision. He always used the right word, made sure the human author used the right word. That's what's so incredible about the word of God. Now, the Lord told these believers that he knew they were being crushed. He also told them that he knew about their poverty. But he then added his own assessment of their condition. He said, I know you're poor, but what was his assessment? Thou art rich. That shows up in parentheses in our text. The Greek word which is used for poverty, he says, I know thy poverty. That Greek word is a word which literally means beggary. These Christians were poor to the point of being beggars. They were totally destitute of any wealth or any money or any possessions because they were deprived by their persecutors of having any right to make a living. I think we had talked about this before. Once they found out you were a Christian, you were not allowed to make a living. They were considered traitors to the Roman Empire because they refused to worship her emperor. And therefore, they were totally boycotted. You know, if they had a little business in town... No one was allowed to purchase from them, and they would not buy their wares or their services. As soon as the citizens of Smyrna would discover that a certain individual had become a Christian, word would spread very quickly, and people would race through the streets in order to be the first one to get to their home in order to plunder it and pillage the home and the business because they knew that the government would not interfere, that these Christians were being deprived of everything. So they were poor to the point of beggary. They suffered the loss of all things for Christ's name's sake. But there was comfort for them 
as they were reminded, you know, maybe as their pastor was reading this letter to them for the first time, they were comforted by his letter that he knew about their situation and he knew what they were feeling. Poverty was something else that the Lord had also experienced, right? Right. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich in heaven, wasn't he? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is very, very rich. There is no one richer than Jesus Christ. Yet for your sakes, what did he become? He became poor. And that ye through his poverty, that we through his poverty might be rich. The Lord was born in a borrowed cave. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And in the meantime, he remained poor. He had nothing. It said, he, he himself said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. However, the wonderful truth is that Jesus was able to tell the Smyrna Christians that despite their material poverty, they were rich. They were very rich. And why is that? Well, because they had invested their treasures where it really counts, in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. They possessed every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, as it tells us in Ephesians 1.3. And they could look forward to a special dwelling place being prepared just for them in their in the Father's house by the Savior himself, as the Lord promised to all of us in John 14, verses 2 and 3. And they were rich in their possession of a living Lord and a personal Savior. You're rich if you know your Lord and that you know he is your personal Savior. And they were rich in their position, possession of the Holy Spirit and of the Word of God, which they didn't have all of it, but they had a good bit of it. The Apostle Paul worded it like this. He worded spiritual wealth like this in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as having nothing and yet possessing all things, possessing the things that really count in the long run. There's a great contrast in the Smyrna persecuted church and the Laodicean apostate church. You know, that that's the last letter that we'll look at, the last of the seven. The Laodicean church members claimed to be rich. You know, they were proud of being so wealthy, having beautiful churches with expensive uh, ornamentation and beautiful padded pews and the whole bit. They claimed to be rich, but what did the Lord tell them? He said, you think you're rich, but really, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's in Revelation 3.17. You know, there is a poverty which is really rich. And that's what the Smyrna Christians had. And there is a wealth which is really poor, which we see the Laodicean Christians had. The church at Smyrna had the gold which had been tried in the fire which the lukewarm Laodicean church members lacked. It's interesting to find that whereas the Lord had not one word of condemnation 
to say to the Smyrna church, you know, nothing bad to say to the Smyrna church. Do you know, on the other hand, that he had nothing good to say to the Laodicean church? So there's a real contrast there. The glorified Savior then went on in verse 9 of his letter to the Smyrna church to say that he knew about the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, the word for blasphemy in that word actually means slander, if you want to write that in, slander. The Jews of Smyrna hated the Christians even more than the Romans hated the Christians. And subsequently, they were literally slandering slandering them in order to get them in further trouble with the Roman government. They were slander, going around slandering the Christians. There was a rather large community of Jews living in Smyrna, and they were thoroughly opposed to the growth of the church there. And they were thoroughly opposed to the gospel message, even more, really, than the Romans were. In fact, as we mentioned, they were the ones who were directly responsible for persuading the Roman officials to execute Polycarp. Kind of reminded me of how the Jews persuaded Pontius Pilate to execute our Lord. And they were the ones who actually, on the Sabbath, carried the logs for the fire which consumed him. In the latter half of verse 9 here, the Lord made the comment that those who were blaspheming or slandering the Christians in Smyrna, they said that they were Jews. He says they... They say they are Jews. But what did he say? He said they are not. That's the Lord's assessment. Rather, he said they were of the synagogue of Satan. Now, that particular wording there, as you can imagine, has stirred up quite a bit of theological debate about who these Jews of the synagogue of Satan really were. It might be that the Lord was referring to the physical Jews, you know, people who were physically, by their blood, born Jews, those Jews who were persecuting the Christians, as we just talked about. You know, they prided themselves. We saw this in the Lord's conversations with the scribes and the Pharisees during his earthly life. The Jews prided themselves on being uh, the seed of Abraham. You know, they always pointed back to their ancestry, or were from Father Abraham. And yet, to the Lord Jesus, these people were not true Jews at all because according to Romans 8, 28, uh, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, a true Jew is not one who is outwardly circumcised, but a true Jew is one, what, who has inwardly been circumcised of the heart. You know, that old stony heart has been replaced by a heart of flesh. In other words, they've been born again. That's a true Jew to the Lord. One who has recognized and submitted to Jehovah God's true Messiah. This is a true Jew. Jesus had confronted the proud Jews of his day back in John 8, verses 42 to 47. Remember, they were saying, you know, well, we're of our father Abraham. Remember how he confronted them, what he had said, which just horrified them? He said, 
You're not of your father Abraham. If you were, you would have done, you would do the same things that Abraham did. But you are of your father the devil. And of course that really angered them. Well, basically he was saying to them, you're not truly Jews. You're of the synagogue of Satan. It's about exactly the same thing that he's saying here. So this is one approach that theologians take, that he may have been talking about true Jews who are blaspheming and persecuting or slandering the Christians, but they weren't true Jews at all because they were of their father, the devil. On the other hand, he may possibly have been referring to the group of men who were claiming to be spiritual Jews, meaning that they were, con- they were claiming conversion to Christianity, but they were not really converted. You see, the church, from its very beginning, was burdened with Jewish converts to Christianity who were not willing. I mean, there was a lot of good ones that converted to Christianity, all the apostles, etc. But there was another group of Jews who converted to Christianity who were not willing to separate themselves from the synagogue and from all of their customs and their traditions and their rituals. And because they were not willing to make the break with all of these things, they were not willing to make the break with Judaism because it had become so important to their lives, they tried to impose these things on the church as a whole. And so they tried to get Gentile believers to be circumcised. And they tried to put all kinds of Old Testament rituals into the church. In other words, basically they were saying that you had to accept Judaism first in order to become a Christian. And so what were these people called? Judaizers, right. There it is up there. These people were called Judaizers. And they were very successful in influencing many to believe that conversion to Christianity also meant conversion to Judaism. The Judaizers tried to graft uh, graft various forms of Judaism onto Christianity, but as Paul recognized even before his own conversion on the road to Damascus, these two systems, Judaism and Christianity, are mutually exclusive. And this was why when he was still the Pharisee, Saul, he so zealously persecuted the church. There was no compromise between Judaism and Christianity, and therefore he knew that. So he persecuted the church in order to preserve Judaism. And then later, after his conversion... Paul wrote the whole epistle to the Galatians in order to expose and condemn these Judaizers. And that's what he does, basically, in the book of Galatians. He exposes Judaizers as anti-Christian legalists. He reminded the Galatian church that they had been justified, they had been saved apart from the law, and that no one should return again after they've been saved from the law, they should not return and again put themselves under the law. And that's what the Judaizers were trying to do and what they were trying to force on the church, you know, saying, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do this. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey all the feast days. You've got to do all these little ceremonies. They were trying to bring the church back under law. Paul accused the Judaizers of trying to 
perfect Christ's perfect work by going back in the flesh to the carnal laws. You know, Judaism was really a secret attack by Satan upon the truth of salvation by grace alone. You know, Satan here was trying once again to hide God behind the temple veil. He was trying to tell people that there was no direct access to him again. I mean, no access to him except through the mediation of a priestly order. And this teaching eventually led to a system of works salvation and almost a complete disappearance of the doctrine of salvation by grace and justification by faith. This is what we'll see as we get into the next two churches. This system of ritualistic bondage was in its embryonic development in these little synagogues of Satan, such as are mentioned here for the first time in this letter to the Smyrna church. If you'll recall, when we compared the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 with the seven Revelation church letters, we learned that the letter to the Smyrna believers corresponds with the parable of the wheat and the what? And the tares. The Judaizers were Satan's masterpiece of over-sowing tares into the church. And this is just the beginning of it here. Well, in the next lesson, we're going to discuss and finish up the Lord's message to the church at Smyrna as we look at what he has to say to them by way of advice and then by way of his appeal, which is the same in every one of the seven letters. He that hath an ear, what? Let him hear what the Spirit hath to say to the churches, and then we'll see what his promised award is to those who overcome. And then, Lord willing, I think we'll also begin to look at the details about the city of Pergamos. That's our third church letter. And then also some of the details that we know about the actual church which existed in Pergamos. At least that's my plan. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. Thank you for the wonderful patience of these women and for their hunger, Lord, to learn about you and to come out on a Tuesday morning and give give their morning for this purpose. I pray, Lord, that you will bless them, put a hedge of protection around them and their extended families, and Lord, just um, use them. Use each and every one of us to be a witness for you, to be light in our communities, and to, to be able to um, withstand the fiery darts of Satan and to stand up strong and boldly for our faith as we see demonstrated by these early first century Christians who were even willing to give the ultimate sacrifice of their, of their lives for your namesakes. I pray, Lord, that if it came down to that for each and every one of us, that we would be willing to give our lives rather than to deny you, that our faith is genuine and it's real and it's built on the confidence we have in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive today, that he resurrected and is victor over the grave. And for this we thank you. Now, Lord, as we sing Amazing Grace, just minister to our souls, and may we lift up our praises to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.